As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Have you been waiting for just the right job? Then welcome to the end of your search. Amazon has seasonal warehouse jobs in your area, and now is a great time to apply. You can start getting paid right away and work close to home. Applying is easy. You don't even need an interview. So what are you waiting for? Come join the team and get a great seasonal job offer today. Visit Amazon.com slash hiring. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer. Before we get started, I just wanted to remind you about a great discount you can get on a pair of headphones from Studio. I'm using a set of Studio Regents to record the episode you're listening to right now, and I love them. Studio is a Swedish manufacturer that makes high-quality headphones and earbuds that you're sure to like. Listeners to The Conspirators can get 15% off their first order by clicking the link I'll include in the show notes below and using the coupon code CONSPIRATORS15 at checkout. Thanks again, and now on with the show. If you were to look for one obsession that's common to nearly every civilization in recorded history, it's death. Where we go, how to delay it, how to prepare the deceased for the afterlife, and of course, how to keep in touch after we're gone. Necromancy is the term for the practice of communicating with and raising the dead. And you can find versions of it throughout history in civilizations all over the world. The Mayans, ancient Egyptians, Babylonians, the Romans, and Greeks all have stories about people who claim to be able to communicate with the dead. The oldest known literary account of necromancy can be found in Homer's Odyssey. In this part of the epic tale, the great hero Odysseus traveled to the underworld, and using spells he obtained from the sorceress Circe, gained insight from the dead into what lay ahead during his journey home. Although the Bible contains passages expressly forbidding necromancy, the practice nonetheless continued even throughout the Middle Ages into Europe and beyond. If you were a practicing magician back then, it was considered the pinnacle of your craft if you were able to raise the dead. And if the necromancer presented the local ruler with some information the spirits gave them about how they should run their kingdom, then they'd be considered foolish to ignore it. Although the practice and rituals of necromancy would evolve over time, the idea that some people could receive messages from the dead never really went away. In late March of 1848, a pair of sisters from Hydesville, New York, Kate and Maggie Fox, convinced their devoutly religious mother that they had begun communicating with the spirits. The girls appeared to have the remarkable ability to ask a question and receive an answer from supernatural beings wrapped on the walls in response. The fact that all this began right around April Fool's Day was completely lost on the girl's mother. As the girls grew older, they managed to turn their little prank into a full-fledged show for the public that would take them into parlors all across the country and, incidentally, would also make them very rich. 
Even late in life when the sisters tried to fess up and admit they'd been conning everyone. The general public refused to believe it. Too many people already had too much invested in the certainty of their belief in the spiritual realm to allow these two old women to ruin it for them. It was out of all this fervent belief that the modern spiritualist movement was born in America. In the second half of the 19th century, dying young was quite common. Back then, the average lifespan was only 50 years old. Women still routinely died in childbirth, children often died of disease, and many men died in the Civil War. This meant that people across the country were desperate for any opportunity to communicate with the spirits of their dearly departed. Seances became common practice. New religions and supposed psychic mediums began setting up shop all across the country. Even Mary Todd Lincoln, the wife of Abraham Lincoln, conducted seances in the White House in an attempt to contact their 11-year-old son, who died of a fever in 1862. It certainly helped that this particular brand of spiritualism fit right in with the Christian dogma. Meaning, it didn't create any sort of conflicts with people when they would attend a seance on Saturday night, then head to church the following Sunday morning. Then in February 1891, a Pittsburgh toy and novelty shop began advertising a new device that they claimed could bring all the fun and entertainment of communicating with the dead into everyone's homes. According to the ads, this magical device could answer questions about the past, present, and future with remarkable accuracy. One that promised never-failing amusement and recreation for people of all classes. They called it the Ouija, the Wonderful Talking Board. The history of the Ouija board is nearly as mysterious as how the device itself is supposed to work. Some people believe the Ouija board is a child's plaything. To others, it's a tool for the devil. I'm Nate Hale, and the spirits are telling me that you need to listen to this podcast right now. And this is The Conspirators. The real problem with a lot of seances was that they were actually kind of boring. Unless the so-called medium had prepared some props and special effects ahead of time to spice things up, oftentimes a seance would amount to a lot of waiting around for the spirits to knock several times to indicate each letter of the alphabet. This could take a really long time to get even the simplest message across. The telegraph had already been invented decades earlier. So why couldn't someone invent a device that could communicate with the spirits just as fast? During the heyday of the spiritualist movement, versions of the talking board had already been around for quite some time. It is, after all, a pretty simple concept. A board containing letters and numbers with a planchette-like device to point to them. But it wasn't until a man named Charles Kennard of Baltimore, Maryland heard about these spirit boards that he saw an opportunity to make some money manufacturing them himself. In 1890, Kennard pulled together a group of four investors, including Elijah Bond, a local attorney, and Colonel Washington Bowie, to start the Kennard Novelty Company. None of these men were believers in spiritualism, but they were all keen businessmen who smelled the sweet aroma of money in the air. But first, they needed a name for their new product. 
Although it's popularly believed that the name Ouija came from a combination of the French word oui, meaning yes, and the German word ja, that's not actually true. The truth is actually a bit stranger. Elijah Bond's sister-in-law, Helen Peters, claimed to be a strong psychic medium. And according to her, the board named itself. You see, she and some others were sitting around the board one evening when she asked it what it should be called. The response was Ouija. And when they asked the board what it meant, the board replied, Good luck. Sometime later, Peters would begrudgingly admit that at the time, she had been wearing a locket bearing the portrait of a woman with the word Ouija below her head. Some historians have speculated that the woman in the locket was actually a fairly well-known author and women's rights activist named Ouija, and that the name Ouija was just a mistake on Peters' part. Now that they had the board's name, the next thing Kennard and his associates had to do was acquire a patent for it. This would prove to be easier said than done. In order to obtain a patent for the Ouija board, Bond brought Peters with him to the patent office in Washington, where the chief patent officer demanded they prove to him the board actually worked before he would approve their application. According to the story, the patent officer told them to make the board tell them his name, which neither Bond nor Peters knew. Peters used the board and apparently came up with the right answer because they left with their approved application in hand and the patent officer ashen-faced and shaking behind them. The thought that Bond or Peters could have possibly learned the man's name in any number of ways ahead of time apparently never occurred to him. The original patent for the Ouija board doesn't offer any explanation as to how the board actually works, merely that it does. This only added to the mystique and Kennard's company began using the message that this mystical device had been approved by the government patent office in ads that ran in New York and other parts of the country. By 1892, the Kennard Novelty Company went from one factory in Baltimore to two in Baltimore, two in New York, two in Chicago, and one in London. At about the same time, though, William Fold, one of the original investors in the company, managed to drive both Kennard and Bond out and took control of the company for himself. Fold is often falsely given credit for creating the Ouija board, although he did continue running the company for the next three and a half decades and managed to turn the talking board into a bona fide international craze. Fold was constantly building newer and bigger factories in order to keep up with the demand for the Ouija board. It was during this building frenzy that he encountered a freak accident that would prove to be his end. In 1927, Fold went up on the roof of his newest factory to supervise installation of a flagpole. He was standing near the edge when he put his hands on an iron support that suddenly gave way, sending him tumbling over the edge. Fold managed to grab hold of an open window, which then came crashing down on his fingers, sending him plummeting to the sidewalk below. The man broke several ribs, but was expected to survive. That is, until the ambulance hit a bump in the road that drove a shard of one of his fractured bones into his heart, killing him instantly. According to Fold's relatives, it was the Ouija board itself that recommended to Fold that he build that particular factory. Now, science will tell you that the Ouija board works based on a phenomenon called the idiomotor effect, in which people can move themselves or another object without realizing they're doing so. In 2012, the University of British Columbia ran a study on the idiomotor effect by having two people sit across from one another and use a Ouija board. 
In the test, the subject was blindfolded and asked to answer a series of yes or no questions. The partner then removed his hands from the planchette, leaving the blindfolded subject to move the device alone. Even though the subject felt that they were exerting no force on the planchette, they still managed to answer more questions correctly than when they answered the same questions verbally. In other words, they actually performed better on the test when they felt they weren't in control of the planchette. Real or not, the Ouija board has been proven to have a powerful effect on some people, even driving them to commit murder. In the fall of 1929, two Seneca Indian women on the Cattaraugus Reservation near Buffalo used a Ouija board to communicate with the spirits. One of the women was 66-year-old Nancy Bowen, and the other was 36-year-old Lila Jimerson, who worked at the reservation school. The women were looking for an explanation for the sudden death of Bowen's husband Charlie, another Seneca healer. What the spirits told them was startling. They killed me, the board said. When the women asked who killed Charlie, the response came back, Clotilde. It even conveniently added the killer's address and a physical description of the woman. Jimerson told Nancy Bowen that she just happened to be acquainted with a woman named Clotilde who fit that same description. She was the wife of Henri Marchand, a Parisian sculptor and former student of Rodin who lived in the area. A few days after their seance was over, Nancy Bowen began receiving letters signed Mrs. Dooley that explained that Clotilde Marchand was a witch who was jealous of her husband Charlie's witchcraft. At first, Clotilde tried hexing Charlie, but when that didn't work, she decided to murder him instead. So on March 7, 1930, Clotilde Marchand answered a knock on the door only to be confronted by Nancy Bowen. The old woman accused Clotilde Marchand of being a witch before pulling out a hammer and beating her savagely with it. Nancy then finished the woman off by stuffing a chloroform-soaked paper down Clotilde's throat. Finally, Nancy had managed to avenge her husband's murder. But not all was as it appeared. Police investigators asked around to find out if there was anyone who might have wanted to do harm to Clotilde Marchand. They soon learned that her husband, Henri, had worked on the Cattaraugus Reservation while creating some Iroquois dioramas for the State Museum in Albany. While there, Marchand had caught the eye of one of his models, Lila Jimerson, the woman who had used the Ouija board with Nancy Bowen. Lila, as it turns out, had been looking for a way to murder Marchand's wife out of jealousy. She and Marchand had been carrying out a secret love affair. Incidentally, this turned out to be only one of many such love affairs Marchand had been having. It came out at trial that he had a habit of seducing a lot of his female models. The trial became a media sensation, and why wouldn't it? It had everything in it. Witchcraft, sex, jealousy, and of course, murder. The first trial ended in a mistrial when Nancy Bowen suffered a flare-up of a respiratory infection. The second trial happened a year later. By now, Jimerson had changed her story and was claiming that the murder had all been Marchand's idea and that she had just been an unwitting pawn. Jimerson was acquitted of all charges and Nancy Bowen was released after pleading guilty to manslaughter 
and accepting a sentence of time served. Although the court believed Henri Marchand had been involved in the plot to murder his wife, he was never charged with any crime. Difficult as it may be to believe, this wasn't the only murder involving a Ouija board that happened around that same time. On November 8, 1933, Dorothea Irene Turley was using a Ouija board with her 15-year-old daughter Maddie in their home in Prescott, Arizona. When the board instructed Maddie that she needed to kill her father so that her mother could marry a young cowboy. At first, Maddie wasn't so sure she should listen to the board, but Dorothea told her that the board could not be denied. So Maddie, being a dutiful daughter, walked up behind her father with a shotgun and shot him twice in the back while he was doing chores on the farm. Maddie and Dorothea were both arrested. Maddie confessed to what she had done, and she was sent to reform school until she was 18. Dorothea was convicted of assault with intent to commit murder and was originally given a sentence of 10 to 25 years. Although the conviction was overturned by the state Supreme Court just three years later in 1936, and she walked away a free woman. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. There were plenty of other questionable incidents that occurred over the years involving the Ouija board. In 1916, a woman named Pearl Curran published a book she claimed that a spirit named Patience Worth dictated to her via the Ouija board. Just a year later, another author one-upped Curran by claiming that none other than Mark Twain dictated another novel to her through the board. In 1920, newspapers reported that would-be psychic crime solvers began showing up at the New York Police Department with tips they'd obtained from their Ouija boards in the mystery of who murdered New York City gambler Joseph Burden Elwell. In 1921, the New York Times ran a story about a Chicago woman who kept her mother's dead body in her living room for 15 days because the board told her to. In 1958, a Connecticut court decided not to honor the will of a woman named Helen Dow Peck, who was instructed by a Ouija board to leave the bulk of her estate to a spirit named John Gale Forbes. Despite the murders and other rather dubious events linked to the board, the Ouija board remained a popular and wholesome form of household entertainment for years to come. For several decades, practically no one associated the Ouija board with anything evil or satanic. The Ouija board was considered so normal that Norman Rockwell once painted an image of a man and woman blissfully communing over the board for a cover of the Saturday Evening Post. In 1951, I Love Lucy aired an episode where Lucy and Ethel hold a seance with one of the boards. Over five months in 1944, a single New York department store sold 50,000 of them. In 1966, Parker Brothers bought the Ouija board from the Fold Company. The following year, two million of the boards sold, outselling Monopoly. For many years, the board's reputation as a fun and innocent children's toy remained. That all changed in 1973, though. That was the year the film The Exorcist was released. The story of a 12-year-old girl possessed by a demon after playing with a Ouija board changed how people saw the toy. Practically overnight, the board began being seen as a tool of the devil, a way for evil spirits to enter our world and possess the innocent. 
After The Exorcist, many more horror novels and movies began being released that depicted the Ouija board as a gateway to hell. All across the country, religious groups began denouncing the Ouija board as the tool of Satan. Massive burnings of the boards became as common as churches that torched copies of Dungeons & Dragons manuals and heavy metal albums. In 2011, Pat Robertson declared on the 700 Club that the Ouija board was a device that would allow demons to seize control of people. After Hasbro acquired Parker Brothers in 1991, the boards continued to sell, but by now the board's reputation had changed so dramatically that it was the air of danger around it that drew people to it. It is a little silly when you think about it that a game you can purchase at any toy store right between Candyland and Chutes and Ladders is supposed to be the gateway for demons from hell. But whether you believe the Ouija board really works or not, it's undeniable that it has had a very real and sometimes terrible effect on the way some people behave. In 1994, a retrial was ordered in the case of a British murder trial when the judge learned that four of the jurors consulted a Ouija board while deliberating their verdict. On Christmas Eve 2014, Paul Carroll was using a Ouija board in his home in the UK town of Consett. According to Carroll, the board informed him that the family's dog Molly was possessed by an evil spirit and needed to be killed. So Carol drowned and dismembered the dog, then dumped the body in an outside drain. But the dog's remains caused the drain to back up. So when workers came to fix the drain, they discovered what Carol had done. Carol was soon arrested and charged with animal abuse. But the story doesn't end there. Only a week after Carol pled guilty and received a suspended sentence for his actions, his wife and stepdaughter were using the very same Ouija board when it apparently told them they were both going to die. The following day, the mother and daughter took some prescription drugs, then set the house on fire in an apparent suicide attempt. Both women survived, and luckily, no one was seriously hurt. Both women were arrested for arson and given four years in prison. In 1983, a group of friends who were obsessed with the occult committed a horrific murder because the Ouija board allegedly told them to. They were 25-year-old Anthony Hall, his 16-year-old girlfriend, Bunny Dixon, 24-year-old Daniel Bowen, and 18-year-old Elizabeth Town. According to reports, Dixon began communicating via Ouija board with the spirit of a 10-year-old boy named David. David instructed Dixon and her boyfriend to leave their home in Florida and join a carnival in Virginia, but first they would need to fund their trip by robbing and murdering a motorist. On July 20th, Town and Dixon pretended to be hitchhiking while Hall and Bowen lie in wait. 25-year-old Nock Van Dang was the unfortunate victim who stopped to pick the girls up. When Dang pulled over, the two men rushed in and robbed him at knife point of $111. They then bound and gagged the man, then drove him to an isolated area nearby. There, Hall carved an inverted cross into Dang's chest with a butter knife. They then made Dang hop into a wooded area where they shot him 11 times in the head and chest. Following the murder, the two couples split up and headed their separate ways. Once they were on their own, Bowen and Town began to have second thoughts and tried calling the police, telling them they had witnessed a murder. They led police to Dang's body. All four of them were arrested and tried for murder. Hall and Bowen got life sentences, while Dixon received 50 years and Town got 17. On February 11, 2001, 
A 53-year-old grandmother named Carol Sue Elviker was using a Ouija board with her daughter Tammy Roach and Tammy's two daughters. Elviker claimed that she received a message from God through the Ouija board that her son-in-law, Brian Roach, was evil and needed to be killed. So Elviker grabbed a knife and stabbed the 34-year-old former mayor of Minko, Oklahoma in his sleep. He cried out for help, but Elviker and Tammy Roach stood by and did nothing while he bled to death. After stabbing Brian Roach, Elviker then turned on Tammy Roach's 10-year-old daughter. This was apparently too much for Tammy. The two women wrestled over the knife, and Tammy managed to take it away from her mother. Afterwards, in what seems like some pretty questionable judgment on Tammy's part, the two women and both children climbed into a car with Elviker driving. Elviker then tried to kill them all by driving head-on into a stop sign. Elviker ended up breaking both her ankles in the crash, and the others only received minor injuries. Next, Elviker got out of the car and tried to shove one of her granddaughters into traffic. After failing to kill the girl, Elviker limped away on both her broken ankles into the nearby woods, where she stripped off her clothing and hid while authorities tracked her down. There's really nothing about this story that doesn't sound crazy. But it's especially bizarre when you consider that Elviker had no history of mental illness before her apparent break with reality. Investigators were unable to find any drugs or alcohol in her system either. So there's no clear reason why she would have gone completely off the deep end the way she did. The only thing investigators could point to as a possible motive was the influence the Ouija board had on her. Elviker was later committed to a psychiatric hospital. Tammy was also charged, although prosecutors later dropped the case. In December 2007, 15-year-old Donald Shalklin and 16-year-old Joshua Tucker asked a Ouija board if they should become serial killers. The board told them yes. Next, they asked the board who their first victim should be. The board spelled out, Mom. On December 19th, the boys were drinking alcohol and cough syrup in Shalklin's home. That night, Joshua Tucker took a knife and stabbed Shalklin's 13-year-old sister Elizabeth in the throat. The pair hid the body and tried to clean up the blood. When Donald's mother began looking for her daughter, the boys attacked her as well. She managed to get to the phone and call 911, but police didn't get there in time. After Tucker's knife broke, Donald and Tucker found another knife and stabbed her some more, then bludgeoned her to death with a dumbbell. The boys were arrested while trying to flee, Shacklin received a nine and a half year sentence while Tucker received 41 years. We can look at any of these cases and think they're just the result of some delusional and mentally ill people allowing the superstition surrounding the Ouija board to influence them. But there's one last story involving a woman in a Ouija board that's a little harder to explain. Angela Jackson was in the village of Kilbarkin in Scotland. She was attending a spiritualist meeting one evening when she believed she received a message from her dead father. She sat in the back of the packed hall when a medium got on stage and began to belt out a song by Jim Reeves that Angela says was her father's favorite. Then the psychic stopped singing and fixed her gaze right on Angela. She said, You're thinking of using a Ouija board, but don't. No good will come of it. Now, Angela wasn't any stranger to the occult and spiritualism. She'd long had a fascination with the afterlife and all things mystical. She was heartbroken after her father died of cancer several years earlier. And she'd been considering for quite some time ways to contact him from beyond. 
One night she went over a friend's house where the couple made a makeshift Ouija board and asked Angela if she'd like to give it a try. Angela decided to ignore the warning the psychic had given her. Angela and her neighbors sat in the flickering glow of the candlelight and let their hands rest on the overturned whiskey glass they were using as a planchette. Almost immediately, the glass began to jerk all over the board beneath their fingers. One of the neighbors asked the board who they wanted to speak to. It spelled out, Angela. Then, it spelled out, Die, bitch. Robert, the neighbor, snatched his fingers back from the glass and swore to Angela that he didn't do it. Almost immediately, the living room door slammed shut on its own. Angela was terrified. She turned back to the board and asked, Who are you? Then the glass spelled out, Satan. Angela shouted defiantly back that she wasn't scared of him. That was when the glass flew off the table and smashed into a wall. After that, the neighbors got up, blew out the candles, and switched the lights back on. They swore they were never going to do that again, but Angela still hadn't had enough. Over the next few months, Angela kept trying to convince the neighbors to give it another try, but they refused. Then one evening, she jolted awake in the middle of the night after having a terrible nightmare about being attacked by a man wielding a hammer. Angela was scared to leave her home after that. She couldn't shake the feeling whenever she did go out that someone was staring at her. One day, she left her flat to go visit her son who lived nearby. She didn't get far when she heard a man's voice behind her growl, Die, bitch! Just before the stranger emerged from the shadows swinging a claw hammer. The man smashed Angela in the face and head repeatedly. Luckily, she survived the attack. She woke in the hospital with a fractured skull. Her attacker was never caught. While Angela has never used a Ouija board ever again, she still lives in fear that one day her attacker may return to finish the job. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. Just a reminder, listeners to The Conspirators can get 15% off their first order of studio headphones or earbuds simply by clicking on the link I'll provide in the show notes and using the coupon code CONSPIRATORS15 at checkout. I wanted to give a shout out to a couple of new Patreon supporters. Thanks so much to Mary and Deborah for helping support the show. Patreon supporters, depending on their level, can receive all sorts of rewards, including t-shirts, thank you cards, stickers, magnets, and of course, access to our Patreon-exclusive minisodes. If you're interested in helping support the show, I'll put a link to my Patreon page in the show notes below. As always, I invite you to rate and review The Conspirators on Apple Podcasts. Your reviews are a huge help in spreading the word and helping bring our show to a wider audience. If you're not on Apple Podcasts, not to worry. We're also on Stitcher, the Google Play Store, or your favorite podcast app. Not to mention our very own website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. I also love to hear your comments and suggestions, so feel free to shoot me an email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again, and I hope you'll join us again soon. <laughs>